you turn with me to the passage on what today's teaching is based, it's John chapter 6, <clears throat> verses 16 to 21. It's printed on page 9 of your bulletins. John chapter 6, verse 16 to 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. And this is God's word. Now that our Lent series is over, we're returning back to our original series when, this, when we pre-launched uh, in February. And we've been looking at the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John teaches us who Jesus is, the person and the work of Christ. That's what John focuses on. And that's what we're coming back to. In chapter 2, we learn that Jesus is the center of our motivation. In chapter 3, as he's teaching Nicodemus, and he talks and reminisces, he doesn't just reminisce, he brings Nicodemus into the past of the wanderings of the Israelites and the, and the fiery snakes that came down and bit them, and he teaches, he teaches Nicodemus that he, that Jesus is our true healing, the only source of, peop, of healing for people who are broken. And we come to chapter 6, and chapter 6 is, uh, is an interesting chapter because it's the one miracle that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. Of all the miracles that Jesus had performed, the feeding of the 5,000 was the one miracle that's recorded in all four. And here's what's going on. Jesus, if you know anything about chapter 6, you know, and if you've ever read the Bible or looked into the Bible or if you've ever heard about what it means when Jesus fed the 5,000, he was with thousands of people teaching them and at one point, they're, they're uh, in this area, and there's no food. They've been, they've been hearing of Jesus, and they need to be fed. Thousands of people, 5,000. Most likely, it was more, because they didn't count the women and children back then. And so he tells the disciples to go feed them. Now, the disciples had just gotten back from performing a series of miracles. They were empowered by Jesus, and he sent them off, and they came back, and they had performed all these miracles, and Jesus says, well, now I want you to feed the 5,000. And what do they do? They look at Jesus and says, "How? It, we, this is impossible. And they re- pretty much start to rebuke Jesus. So what does Jesus do? He takes a boy, a boy's lunch, a pauper boy's lunch, the frailest of lunches. And he uses it, he thanks God, and he uses it, and he distributes it among the people. And sure enough, 5,000 people have been fed. It's recorded. And there are 12 bushels of food left over. The disciples' hearts are hardened. That's what it says in actually the other Gospels. Mark, the disciples' hearts are hardened. Why? They thought they were able. They, they came back on a high, a spiritual high, and they were able. And they went out with their might, and they performed all these miracles, and Jesus pretty much slighted them. That's how they felt. You know, he embarrassed them. So what does Jesus do? He sends them out. This is the part that we read. He sends them out on a boat, and he doesn't join them. You know, they were probably waiting for him to come. We don't really know, but he had not joined them at that point. John writes that here, and, and they get on a boat, and they're off, and these, a lot of these men are fishermen. They're off to, to out, out into the three and a half miles, it says, three, three and a half miles in a lake, very, very deep waters, and a storm comes. The waters grew very rough. The waves are high, and then Jesus, they see Jesus appearing, and they're terrified. 
You know, John has, is interesting because um, the way he structures the book of John, he starts out, he teaches about who he is, what he's going to do. And then he performs a miracle to demonstrate what he teaches. Or he kind of demonstrates it with a miracle first, and then he teaches about the miracle. So for instance, John chapter 2, he says, you know, he, he performs a miracle, the first miracle, wine. He turns uh, water into wine. Later on, he heals an official son in John chapter 4 in the same town. He, and uh, he teaches about joy. He teaches about joy. In John chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. That's the teaching. That happens in the latter half of John chapter 6. In the first half of John chapter 6, he feeds everybody, 5,000 people with bread. And sandwiched in between the teaching and the miracle. And you see this all throughout the book of John. There's this little nugget here where he sends the disciples out into, into the water. What's he doing? What's the purpose? Everybody was filled in the feast. Everybody was filled. The disciples, they're not filled. They're upset. They're hardened. They're dissatisfied. And uh, now they're in this powerful storm. Have you ever been in a powerful storm? If you've ever, you know, Hurricane Irene had come and gone. I was at Walmart the night before. I got caught up in the frenzy. I was at Walmart the night before. There was nothing at Walmart. All the appliances, plenty, clean. But on the other side where the food was, empty, bare shells, completely bare. There's a frenzy when you, when you hear about a pending storm. You ever been in a pending storm? You ever, you ever been in a storm, a powerful storm? You know, uh, people have said it's like a heavenly weed whacker. You ever been, have you ever seen a tornado? It just comes around and whips around and the sound, the power of the sound, you can witness the power, you can hear the power of a tornado, you can experience the helplessness, the fear, the anxiety, the pain of being in a storm. Now, how should Christians look at storms? How are Christians taught to look at storms? John says, the way we look at storms, not like anybody else. People say Christianity is about acting. Christianity is about behaving. Christianity is about how you treat other people. And it's not less than that. It's just so much more than that. In fact, it has very little to do with those things. That's not necessarily what Christianity is about. Other people say Christianity is about doctrine. It's about knowledge, acquiring knowledge that will help you to live your life. Again, it's not less than that. But it's so much more that it actually diminishes all those things. You know, Christianity doesn't make you wiser or nicer, per se, so much as it makes you newer. It's about being new. Christianity is about seeing Vital Christianity, a vital faith that's about seeing the world through a particular lens of truth. Now, what does that mean? You know, there was a time when, you know, a lot of us, um, you're, you drive down the road, you see everything very clearly. But over the course of time, as you get older, there comes a time where um, you, didn't, you don't even realize it, but as you're driving down the road, a sign that you saw from a certain distance doesn't look as clear anymore. And you realize something's wrong with your eyes. And you kind of bear with it, and you deal with it, and you, you squint, and you don't even realize you're squinting for a long time. You go for years sometimes this way until one day you realize, maybe I should get this checked out. And you go to an optometrist, and you take the exam, and you put on your contacts for the first time, and how do you feel? The world is completely different. What was once kind of cloudy, the images that are cloudy, makes so much sense because you can make out everything. You realize, I didn't even realize that was the word I was looking at. Everything looks so much good. People who, you know, from a certain distance, who look a certain way, look so much different when you have clear eyes. Christianity is about seeing. Vital faith is about seeing. The difference between formal religion 
Irreligion and Christianity is about, is, is this. They can't all be accurate. One of them is based on truth. Only one. And Christianity says, if you see the world through these lens, you're never going to be the same. You're never going to be the same. Now, what lens do Christians view the world? Right, we're, we're approaching the three points here. Because it teaches us that through Jesus, even in the storms of life, you're going to interpret the storms that we encounter in life daily if you have the right lens. Three lessons. So through the storm, when life can seem completely cloudy, when that heavenly weed whacker is coming down and messing up our lives every day, happens every day, you don't expect it. We're going to see who Jesus is in the storm. We're going to see uh, what he did in the storm. And we're going to see how we then can interpret storms in our lives. Who he is, that's his identity in the storm. What he did, that's uh, his power in the storm and how that teaches us and leads us to interpret storms. That's his counsel. Identity, power, counsel. Who he is, what he did, how we can see. First, who he is. If you see this in verse 19, 16 to 19, I'm just going to read this again um, just to, to refresh ourselves. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. In other words, the Jesus were fishing. Uh, the disciples were fishing. They were in deep waters, right? And the storm comes, and these guys are fishermen, so they were probably a bit concerned, to say the least. They were probably concerned. They were nervous. They were anxious. But in verse 19, if you notice in verse 19, they didn't become terrified until they saw Jesus. The waters are crashing, the waves are crashing against the boat, right? And the storm is going very, very rough. And yet, it doesn't say they were terrified until they actually saw Jesus. Why? It's because Jesus was walking on water. There's something on walking on water. There they knew that this man is not normal. He's transcendent. He's from another world. He has to be. He's supernatural. This is not natural. He's supernatural. Another world for otherworldly. Not of this world. Supernatural is what? He's holy. This person is not like us. But what does Jesus say? Verse 20. It's in the red. If you if you actually have a Bible, it's written in red. It is I. Don't be afraid. In the Greek, that's a famous phrase. Ego eimi. It's the same phrase when Moses, tending to the sheep, encounters God for the very first time before a burning bush, a bush that wasn't being consumed even though it was burning. And he hears a voice, and the voice says, take off your sandals. You are standing on holy ground. That's what he, he says, I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. I'm revealing myself to you. I am. Later on he says, I am who I am. I, ego me, the same phrase. In other words, God is, there's no, with God there's no I was, there's no I will be. I don't change. What I have done, I have done. What I have said, I have said. What I do for you, I will do for you. I do not change. It is written in blood. In other words, you know, he says, I'm perfect, I'm unique, I'm self-sufficient, I have no needs. I am transcendent. I am otherworldly. Take off your sandals. You are standing on a holy ground. I am holy. I am set apart. Moses' response, he sees the fire, and what does he do? He cowers. He hides his face. He immediately grasps this holiness of God, and he hides himself. 
the disciples, they see Jesus approaching. The waves are crashing, the boat's rocking, they're scared, they're nervous, but they were terrified when they saw Jesus because what do they see? This man is otherworldly. You can say a lot of things about Jesus, but he's revealing himself at this moment to the disciples. You can say a lot of things about Jesus. You can say, uh, you know, he's a moral teacher. You can say he's, he's a good man. You know, most people will agree. All people agree he's a good man. They'll say he's a great teacher. His words have lasted for centuries. He's a religious leader. He started a revolution. But the thing is, you'd never be terrified. If you believe just those three things that I just said about Jesus, you would, it would never terrify you because it would never change you. It would never challenge you about today where you are in your storm right now. It would never terrify you. You know why? Because if you take on Jesus as your teacher, that's a choice. Whatever counsel he gives you, you can make it. It's a choice you have to make. We hire teachers to teach us. We can choose to listen or not. That's not what's going on. Here, he's more than a teacher. He was supernatural, completely supernatural. He's shaping their eyes in the midst of the storm to see him. And when they did, when they finally realized who Jesus is, terror. And yet he calms them with a word. He says, don't be afraid. I am. And then, you know, immediately they take him into the boat. Verse 21, they take him into the boat and they they head off to shore, it says. Very quick episode. You know, you ever wonder, why? Why is it that they're terrified and he says, don't be afraid. I am. They say, okay, get into the boat. And they head off to shore. It's kind of unusual. Why do they do that? Rudolf Otto, he's a German philosopher, in 1917, he's a famous German philosopher, in 1917 wrote probably his seminal work, you know, the most important piece of work that he could have written in his history. 1917, he wrote a book of the idea of the holy. And in the idea of the holy, he, he writes um, that there's a con- concept of the numinous. The numinous means the holy, the thing that's otherworldly. And he says people, humans, are attracted to the holy. And at the same time, we're repelled by the holy. So we call it, he calls it the numinous tremendum, meaning that, you know, on one hand, we're attracted to something that is otherworldly, apart from us, better than us. But at the same time, we're afraid. There's a tremendum. There's a fear of the holy. And, you know, we can go into, you know, the best way to, I have two examples. One, when you think about fire, fire is beautiful. You ever sit before a campfire? Beautiful. You know, you want to come close. You want to put your, there's, there's a beauty and the power. It's all there and you see it. And we look into the fire. But if you get, the closer you get it, there comes a point where you get too close, it starts to consume you. And that's what Rudolf Otto is talking about. He says beauty is attractive, but the thing is we avoid something. We avoid, we want to get close to beauty, but you get too close, you know it might consume you. How do you understand that? High school dance. Junior year, high school dance, the prom. You know, the prom's probably not a good example. Let's take just a regular dance. You know, this is right before the prom because you gotta think about who you're gonna ask, right? You go to the high school dance. And, uh, you've been, you've been eyeing somebody for a very long time because she's attractive to you, you know, or he's attractive to you. And, you, you know, I mean, he makes you nervous. He makes you nervous every t- single time he comes by. You go to the dance. What do you do? You make sure everything's perfect about yourself because that's your best shot. You go to the dance, what happens? You know, everything's cool. You know, junior high dance, girls are on one side, guys are on the other side. Two hours go by, guys are just talking to each other. Finally, you know, they come together, but you know, like the last like two or three songs. But high school dance is a little bit more social, right? You come together, you start talking with your friends, you know. But out of the corner of your eye, you've got your eye on that one person. That's how it is, right? That's the numinous. There's someone beautiful. There's someone set apart. 
You want to be near that person. You think about that person. No matter where you are in the room, you know where they are in the room. But when they come close to you, what happens? You start to turn and go the other way. Why? You're not ready. All of a sudden, you're not ready. You go to the bathroom. You check your hair. You know, you look at your teeth. How's the weather in there, right? You look at your teeth, right? That's what you do, right? Um, the best way to understand that is to, that's the numinous tremendum. You're attracted to things that are beautiful, but then you, you're afraid of the things that are beautiful because if you get too close, what happens? Your insecurities come out. In the face of something beautiful, your inadequacy starts to show through. You become inadequate because you know. You play basketball, you know, you could be the best guy on the court, but when some Division I basketball player shows up and wants to play with you, all of a sudden you want to take the back seat. Why? Because you know. There's a sense of wanting him on your team, and then at the same time, you don't want to be the recipient of a pass because you might mess it up. You know, you're so afraid of screwing up. That's the numinous. That's the tremendum. So on one hand, they're afraid. But on the other hand, they want him in the boat. They need him on the boat. The Bible gives us a very coherent explanation of why we're like this. Because our soul has two layers. We're very multidimensional. On one hand, we're built to relate to God. He created us. So we're built that way to relate to him. You know, the way bees are attracted to honey, the way a man is attracted to his spouse. You know, but at the same time, on the other hand, we're, we're created with freedom. And we've chosen to go against that. We've chosen to reject that which we were created for. And so it created this void and this chasm. You know, and, and, uh, and we decided as a result to live for ourselves, to serve ourselves, to live selfishly with our freedom. And instead of looking at the creator and being attracted to the creator, wholly just for our creator, we wanted to become our own creator. So what happens? When you're in the presence of the real creator, you start to feel inadequate. There's inadequacy. It's just like being in, involved or coming near the numinous. When you're in the presence of someone more gifted, more talented, more beautiful, you want to be near, but you want to avoid. We seek God, but getting too close scares us. Why? Think about the first time you ever walked into a church, whether it's this church or any other church. The first time you've ever come in, you don't know what to expect. If you can think that far back for some of you, you don't know what to expect. You wonder what it's going to feel like, how people are going to look at you. Am I dressed okay? Why? Because you're going to fear about how you're going to be received. Or you're going to fear being disappointed by what you're going to hear. Or you're going to be afraid of what this is going to call you to do. I I remember a friend of mine telling me, you know, initially I was afraid because of what God would think of me. But then I was afraid to go to church because of what God would want me to do and be. This tremendous fear, the challenge, the call of the gospel. Why is that? It's because we want utter control. We want control in our lives. We want, um, you know, we want God in our lives, but we also want our control, and, and, and it's impossible. A God that, that gives you complete control of your life wouldn't be God, you know, because it's to say that you're wiser. It's to say that you know better, you know. It's, a, it's either he's, he, you're wiser than him or uh, he doesn't love you because he's just going to let you go on, even though he knows he's going to let you go and do what you want to do. True love. You know, true love intervenes. The disciples are starting to realize here, as Jesus, you know, imagine on this boat, and they're sinking. There's waves crashing at them. It's raining. There's a storm. The wind, the weed whacker is turning, right? And they see Jesus walking on water. And Imagine his poise. Look at his calm. 
completely otherworldly. And they're starting to realize now for the first time that the person that we need in the boat is the same person who's going to demand purity, is the same person who's going to demand maturity, is the same person who's going to demand growth, is the same person who's going to call me and challenge me to live according to a very, very different uh, set of standards or beliefs, but also loves you and accepts you and wholly sacrifices for you. He's on the water. He's in the storm. True love intervenes. True love gets dirty. True love demands. True love challenges. But true love gets dirty with you. We fear that. But deep inside, we, we need that kind of intervention. We know that. You know, imagine a friend of yours who's hooked on a substance. And you see his life, little by little, degrading. What do you do? Do you just let him go? Well, you say initially, I'm going to let him go. So you kind of stand aside and you kind of watch and what happens is little by little now he's running out of money and he's starting to sell things. He's starting to let go of his possessions because he needs to continue to feed himself you know, with the substance. What do you do? Do you let him go? Do you just watch him? You know, Just hang out with him, have fun and just kind of let go part your ways? Next thing you know, you realize he's run out of everything so he starts to prostitute himself so that he can continue to feed his addiction. What do you do? Do you just let him go? True love intervenes. True love gets in. True love gets dirty. You have to let Jesus' words speak to you in the storm. All of us are in a storm right now. Every one of us. There's not a single person here who's immune to storms. Every one of us is going through something, and yet Jesus, you've got to let Jesus speak to you in the storm. He's calm. Imagine his poise, but he says, I am. Do not fear. Do you know do not fear is probably one of the most widely used phrases uttered by God or a representative of God in the New Testament? Throughout the New Testament, not just in the Gospels, do not fear. Do not be afraid. Take courage. It is I, he says. I am. Let that speak to you. I am God. This is who I am. You can rest in confusion. You can rest in suffering. You can rest in doubt. That's who he is. Second, what does he do in the storm? And this demonstrates his power and his love. Now, the disciples, they're caught off guard. They weren't expecting this. Calm late, they get on, everything seems fine, they go out deep, and all of a sudden the storm shows up out of nowhere. The storms show our powerlessness. That's our condition. You know, it's no wonder that the, Jesus, the, the disciples, they actually took him in. They see that he's holy, they see that he's powerful, but they need him. They know that they need him. Why? He's, the walking on the water has tremendous significance. Think about it. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God does what? Hovers over the waters. Hovers over the waters. Second Kings chapter eight, or First Kings chapter eighteen. Remember the story of Elijah. Elijah, the great prophet. What does he do? He has the prophets of Baal, right, an idol, gather on one end, and they have their altar. He's on the other end, and they build their altars to their gods. And he says, "You call out to your god, and let's see what happens. And I'm going to call out to my god, and we'll see what happens. And ultimately, may the best god win." That's basically what he says. Long story short. So the prophets of Baal are crying out to their God. They start out praying. They start clamoring. Next thing you know, they're cutting each other so that they would get God's attention and nothing comes down. Nothing. No answer from their God. Baal doesn't say a word. Elijah prays to God. What does he do? He takes a trough of water and he fills his altar. And he fills his altar. It's just to the point where the water starts leaking out of the altar. And then he prays. And this fire comes down and devours the entire altar. Amazing. 
How amazing is that? This wet-drenched altar completely, and it actually says in 1 Kings 18 that the water was completely licked up. Why? What's the significance of that? Baal was the water god. He was like Poseidon. He was the god of the sea. He was the god of fertility, the god of the sea. He was the god of thunder. They said that his, when it thundered, it was his voice that thundered across the waters. There were notions of Baal fighting against other gods and other serpents in the sea and Baal coming and winning. And now Elijah comes off and he, and he floods this altar with water and God comes down and devours it. What is he saying? Throughout the Old Testament, water is a sign of chaos. Water is the sign of the deep. Jonah plunges into the sea. A fish comes up, swallows him, takes him down into the deep. You don't know what's down there. We still don't know what's down there. Thousands of years ago, they really didn't know what was down there. So it was something enigmatic, uncontrollable. Storms came out of nowhere. They couldn't explain it. So the water always symbolized, the storm symbolized chaos, us not being in control of our lives, enigma, mystery. And what do you see here in the New Testament? God, just like Genesis chapter 1, hovering over the waters, Jesus is now walking on water. Complete control, complete poise. The people look at him and they realize, this isn't a man, at least not just a man. This is holiness, personified. This person is walking, he commands that which is uncontrollable. He owns that which is chaotic. He's the God of our storms. In your call to worship, Psalm chapter 29, it's God's voice that thunders. It's God's voice that's over the waters. It's God who is in control. John chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus is walking on the water. Utter control, incredible power, incredible poise. Why? Because he's got incredible power. And he says, take courage. In other words, have strength. You have power because I'm revealing myself to you. In John chapter 10, he says, no one takes my life from me. No one can take my life unless I lay it down. In other words, I have so much power. I'm so powerful. Unless I give myself up, you can't even cut me. Unless I give myself up, unless I surrender myself, you can't destroy me. Nothing has power unless I give it to him. To Pilate, Pontius Pilate, a Roman governor, he says to him, what does he say? You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Amazing poise. He says to all of Roman authority, amazing poise, the power that you have, I've given it to you, he says. In this boat, they're terrified. But Jesus demonstrates ultimate poise, ultimate control, ultimate power. One word from Jesus, one word. He says, don't be afraid. He gets into the boat, everything calms down. Have me in your life, he says. No matter how stormy, no matter the gales, no matter how turbulent, no matter how ugly, I'm going to bring you beauty. I'm going to bring you healing. I'm going to bring you order where there's chaos in your life. I can bring it to you. You can find peace. You can find security. Remember the context? The disciples, their hearts are hardened. Right? Their hearts are hardened. And Jesus says, why don't you go fishing? To break their heart. To soften their hearts. Because they're thinking, you know, I went out there and I performed all these miracles and now you show me up like this? Because that's, the, that's religion. Religion says, I've worked my hardest. I deserve more than this. 
Jesus says, go out to the storm. What does he do? He sends a storm. He sends a storm into the disciples' lives, just like he sends storms into our lives. Softens us. If you have the right lens, he's doing it to soften us, to soften our hearts. If you focus on your own powerlessness, you're going to be alone. The storm is going to overwhelm you. And you know what's going to happen? It's because you didn't take him in. But if you focus on your strength or your ability, what are you doing? You're still alone. And a larger storm is going to come and ultimately overwhelm you because you didn't take him in. Jesus is saying, take me in. You know, there's an old children's song. It says, with Christ in my vessel, I can smile at the storm until he guides me home. Now, how does that counsel us? You know, we learned who he is in the storm. We learned um, what he did in the storm. He demonstrates his power. You know, he demonstrates his authority, his control, his poise, and he speaks to us and he says, be calm, take courage, have strength. You have power. It is I, I am. How does that counsel us? How does that move us? How does it teach us how to look at our storms? How do you put on the glasses so that you can see, oh, I thought it was a storm. It's cloudy. It's crazy. But once you put on these new lens, you see that there's a deeper meaning behind these storms. Storms reveal not just who he is. You know, it maximizes who Jesus is, but it shows us who we really are, how powerless we are, how helpless we are. You know, I mean, it's not like the disciples were speaking in poems. This is a story. This is a narrative. This is history. John's writing truth. He's writing news, right? But it can be, for them, it was a real storm. But for us, it's a metaphor. It reveals our state. It reveals our condition. You know, you think you have power. You think you have power. You think you're strong. Then you get sick. You think, uh, you think you're good looking. You think you're beautiful. You know, and then you get into an accident. You can't walk. You know, you think you, uh, you have wealth. You think you have security, and then the recession hits. You lose your job. You think you have the perfect relationship. That's all you need. And then there's brokenness. You're out in the lake. The Gospel of Mark says that Jesus actually sent the disciples. You know, he actually sent them. Jesus actually puts people through storms. He sends us into them. In this passage, you know, he starts with a feast and then he goes into it and he sends them into danger, you know, the waters, the enigmatic, the uncontrollable, the chaos, you know, where he seems just completely absent. And the disciples thought, you know, they were right. You know, I had power. You know, uh, why is Jesus rebuking me like this? He's teaching the people. Afterwards, he teaches the people about who he is, the bread of life. And he doesn't want you to just know that he's the bread of life. He doesn't want you to just taste that he's the bread of life. He wants you to experience that he is your utter source of satisfaction, that he is your utter source of life. Man cannot live by bread alone, right? Um, He says, don't be afraid. He's present. You know, he doesn't say, don't be afraid. I'm here. I checked the web. I checked the weather forecast. The storm's going to be over in about an hour. That's not what he said. He doesn't say, you know, uh, don't be afraid, I am here. Uh, A larger ship is going to come by, pick you up, and we're going to head back home together. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, don't be afraid because I'm going to teach you how to escape. You know, um, that's how we talk to one another. We say, it's going to pass. Don't worry. It's going to pass. And, you know, to the person who's suffering, 
what does it do? It minimizes the storm. It minimizes what we're going through. That's, Jesus is not going to do that. He says, take courage. I am. There's something much greater than the storm and the undercurrent that's holding you steadfast. Anchor onto me. If you're in a storm right now, we, you know, we're, we're all in storms right now. You know, We have to recognize that God is present. He is here. He doesn't minimize your experience. In fact, many times, you know, and some of us have experienced some horrible, horrible things in life. And yet, to think that God is using those things not to destroy you, but to actually build you. He's actually using those sufferings and those storms not to bring you down, but to actually build you up. You know, um, this is where people get hung up. They say, well, I don't see him. I never have seen him. I've been going through storms all my life. And if he was here, you know, uh, how come I'm still in this mess? How come I'm still going through it? You're missing it. Jesus is putting us through the storm so that we might lose those other things. We're like, those things would actually be considered lost compared to anchoring into who Jesus is. And some of us have been through some crazy things. Those crazy things externally turn into crazy things internally, right? And yet, what Jesus is saying is that it may take time for the external and the internal to resolve. But it doesn't mean that I'm absent. It would be poor logic to think that just because I'm going through a storm, God must be absent. Put on the accurate lens. Why the storms? Storms reveal your anchors. How weak, not just you are, but how weak your anchors are. Storms reveal, uh, you know, another word for anchor is what? Idol. Let's unpack idol. In the ancient days, they had these wooden figurines and these gold and these silver figurines that you prayed to, as a family, you would pray to them in your house to give you a baby, you know, to give you money, to get you good commerce, you know, to get, you know, and those, you didn't have a job, it was commerce, you were merchants, you were agrarians, to give us a good harvest. So you pray to the God of the harvest, you pray to the God of, of commerce, you pray to the God of fertility. Today we've traded in those little figurines. The figurines are instead in our hearts. And what we've done is instead of praying to the God of commerce, we just worship our jobs. We worship our careers. We judge other people based on their careers and their jobs. We judge other people based on their salaries or their pedigree or their status. We've given up uh, the figurine of fertility. Instead, we've hold, held it in our hearts, and now we say we worship our children. We worship our children. We, we need to have these things in our lives. We need them to be absolutely perfect or we'll be ruined because it says something about who we are as people. We have to be the perfect parents. We have to be the perfect uh, son or daughter. You know, those are the things we worship. We've traded in all the figurines. They've become much more deep, much more abstract, and yet much more tangible and real to us at the same time. An idol is something that you worship, something that you center your entire life's motivation around. This is where you get your meaning. This is where you get your self-worth. Jesus reveals in your storms, he reveals your anchors. He reveals your idols. Anchors make us feel like we're in charge. Anchors make us feel uh, like we're in control. And we cast tons of them out there. And something sticks and we think it's deep. And we think it's going to hold us until the storm comes. The storm, what does the storm do? It uproots the anchors. It shows us how weak these anchors are. Everything goes in disarray. I thought this relationship was all that I needed until it's over. I had no idea. I never, I never conceived the idea of breaking up with this person. And now it's over. 
I thought that this job was going to be my salvation. It's all that I needed. This salary was all that I needed. I was told that once I hit the six figure, I've made it. I've arrived until you lose your job or until the next person has a better job than you. All of a sudden, everything falls apart. You're in a storm. Why does God send storms in our lives? He sends them to show us how weak and how frail our anchors are, to show us how inadequate our anchors are, how inadequate we are, but how inadequate our anchors are to sustain us. And yet at the same time, he sends these storms to show us how adequate he is. He minimizes our anchors and he maximizes himself. That's a storm if you have the right lens. Paul, the Apostle Paul, Time Magazine, says that he is in the top five most brilliant people in world history. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. I'm just going to read this famous passage. Philippians chapter 3. Paul studied under Gamaliel, who was a descendant of Socrates. You know, the equivalent of being a PhD scholar at the top world institution of its day. Paul, the Pharisee, legalistically righteous, Paul of the tribe of Benjamin, held up in high regard, says, not that I have already obtained this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Okay, now here, listen to what he says. He says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Paul said, there were tons of storms in my life. There wasn't at one point. Paul was so highly regarded, you know, to the point of bitterness. This small rising group of people called Christians threatened everything that he believed about God and about faith, and he became bitter. And to the point where he actually went out and tried to murder these people. And then he encountered Christ. And he says, now I've considered all those gains as loss. That's the Apostle Paul. Paul had everything, but it made him bitter. And so he climbs onto the Lord, and later he says in other epistles, he says, I've been shipwrecked. I've been out at sea in storms. And yet I rejoice. He endures. Why? Why? Remember Matthew chapter 7, Jesus? Jesus says, two houses, sand and rock. Two houses, sand and rock. How do you know your foundation? The storm. Is beauty your raft? Your raft? You know, then you're of, uh, you know, aging or prettier people in your life are going to destroy you. You know, is marriage, you know, your life raft? Is marriage your anchor? And the storm is being single. Is money that safety net? Then a recession is going to kill you. He says, build your life on me. Now, some storms, Jesus says, peace, be still. Other storms, he's going to keep the storm going, but he allows you to walk on the water with him. He's going to be there with you. He's going to transfer his power to you. But the main storm, Jesus suffered alone. Matthew 28, Matthew 27, sorry, Jesus is on the cross, and the earth started to shake. Luke 23 says there was darkness. It came over the land. There was a storm. Jesus is on the cross, and a storm erupts. 
and there's an earthquake, and there's darkness, and meanwhile, it's not just an external storm. He's hung on the cross, and there's nails that have pierced him, and people are shouting. There's a storm of insults. He's got external storm. But he says, I can take it. I can take it, he says. People said, you know, you are God? Really? You're God? Are you really the I am? Then come down here. End the storm. But he remains silent. Why? It's because he didn't come for that. Those things were absolutely nothing compared to the ultimate storm that he was about to suffer on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because when he said that, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, the earthquake, the darkness, the nails, I can take those things. But here, I'm about to lose my real anchor. This was the anchor that's not supposed to break. This was the anchor that everybody is supposed to cling to. The nails I can take, the piercing I can take, but when my God, my God, he is my center, he is my anchor, I've lost him, completely forsaken me. I can't take that. Now my life is unstable. Now my life is uncontrollable. I'm in utter chaos. I've lost power. Why? So that my people can have power. I've lost holiness. I've become sin. Why? So that people can, my people can become righteous. I've lost the Father. Why? So that we can have a Father. My life has become a storm. Why? So that we can have his calm. And yet on the cross, you know, not once did he look pathetic. I mean, externally he looked a mess, but not once did he utter pathetic words. Not once did he say, oh, woe is me. This is like the worst thing a person can, I'm in so much pain. (laughs) That's not what he did. That's not what he did on the cross. What did he do? He was worshiping. Psalm 22. He was worshiping on the cross. He was reciting the words, continually reminding himself of who God is in the storm, of what he does in the storm, of who he is in the storm, of what he's doing in the storm and how he can interpret the storms of his life. It said that he was glad to be on the cross. Psalm, uh, uh, what is it, Isaiah 53 said he was satisfied to be on the cross. Hebrews chapter 12 said it was, that's my joy to endure the cross. He was worshiping so that he could teach us, so that he can counsel us, so they can mentor us. Your storms are powerful. But in the midst of a storm where God seems absent, God is actually, he can be a lot closer than you think. So don't think of the storms as punishment. You've got to look to Jesus. Jesus was the most perfect person in the world, and yet what happened? He endured storms. He endured the ultimate storm for us, for you, so that you could look to Christ in the midst of our storms. Jesus says, bring me into your boat. Abandon your anchors. Tether to me. And you're going to find safety. You're going to find security. You're going to find peace. That's Jesus, our true security. Will you take him in? Will you take him in this week? Will you take him in the midst of school, finals approaching? Will you take him in the midst of work, deadlines approaching? Will you take him in the midst of demands of children, crying babies? Will you take him in in the midst of arguing spouses? Will you take him in today? Will you take him in this week?